this. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Let's read that one more time. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He wasn't following who? Us. See, they weren't concerned about whether this man was following Jesus. They were concerned about whether or not he was following them. You see, he didn't get to cast out demons because he wasn't part of the crew. He wasn't part of the club. Only they got to do that. This nobody who wasn't cool enough to be in their club was now doing what they themselves had just failed to do a few chapters before. If you'll remember a few chapters before, here's what happens. They show up. They try to cast out a demon out of somebody. They try to uh, uh, do healing. And it does not function. It doesn't work. Because they do it on their own authority. And Jesus has to come and tell them. They pull Jesus to the side. Once Jesus fixes the issue and heals the person. They pull Jesus to the side. And they're like, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, well, this thing does not come out but by fasting and prayer. There's, there's just some things that won't come out by the fasting and prayer. Here's the deal. They wanted to go to the demon, cast it out, but they hadn't even prayed about it. So they're jealous at this guy. Well, he's doing something that we should have done before. And he's not part of the club. Here's what Mark is showing us. Mark shows us our tendency to puff ourselves up. To think highly about and reassure ourselves. And here's how we do that. You want to know how a human being thinks highly of themselves? They think highly of themselves normally by putting other people down. See, ad agencies, marketing firms, they've made billions and billions of dollars exposing the deep flaws in all of us. Our desire for status, privilege, exclusivity. We all have some private exclusive club that we want to be a part of. We want to feel special in some way because we're all desperately trying to mask our flaws and we're trying to reassure our faults. See, we want to convince ourselves so often that we're better than others or not as bad as others. See, but this is the nature of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is self-seeking. The kingdom of man is self-loving. The kingdom of man is self-centered. The kingdom of man is self-exalting. The kingdom of man is self-captivating. And Jesus' response to the disciples show us the nature of his kingdom. He told them this. He told them, don't stop this guy. He was telling them, here's what he was telling them. It ain't about you. This, is, this isn't about you. And let me just tell you this because I want, I want to drive this through this morning. What God is doing in the world is not limited to what he's doing in your life. Even though you may feel this way, our attitude and our outlook is determined by what we feel God is doing or not doing in our lives. Instead of looking up and seeing all that God is doing in the world. Do you know who's the most guilty of doing this? The American church. The church here in the United States of America. We complain about persecution, but we really know nothing about it. Talk to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. 
talked to our folks in China. I was just reading the news article the other day. It came out in the New York Post. Mega church in China. Over 50,000 members would meet at this church. The Chinese Communist government came and took down the entire church building. You cannot worship here. It is against the law. Communist China. What do you do when you're in a foreign nation... When you're surrounded by people of another faith who want nothing more and nothing less than to kill you for your faith. Yet the gospel continues to be preached. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this. All throughout the Muslim world, all throughout the Muslim world in this moment, there have been accounts of people having visions of Jesus. And coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So what God is doing in the world, it's not limited to you. It's not limited to the church. You see, we have options here. I can have a Tom mindset. I can also be the pastor of Risen King and have a Risen King mindset and say it's all about Risen King. Or I can have a kingdom mindset that says it's all about God's kingdom. No matter where he's doing it, how he's doing it, what state, what city it's in, what nation, what country, what it looks like, God is in it. See, Jesus was showing that he's doing incomprehensibly more than we could ever imagine. Just as he gave them authority to cast out demons, he gave this guy the same too. You see, Jesus didn't come to this earth to set up a private exclusive club. He came to this earth to establish a kingdom that would reach all peoples of all times, of all language groups, of all ethnicities, of all generations. His work reached beyond the disciples. His work will reach beyond us. See, by the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he would have close to 500 disciples. Not just 12. See, the world once believed this. The world once believed that the heavenly spheres, the planets, revolved and rotated around the earth. They thought the earth was the center of the universe. Until this guy shows up on the scene, his name is Copernicus, and he wrote this, The heavenly don't revolve around the earth. They revolve around the sun. What happened after that was called the Copernican Revolution. See, Jesus was teaching, the world does not revolve around us. God is calling every single one of us this morning to go to a Copernican Revolution Where we realize it's not all about us. It's about Jesus, the Son, S-O-N. Listen to what scripture says, Mark 9, verse 41. It says this, For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, within man, and this is all part of the same story. Within man's kingdom, significance and worth is determined by what you're able to bring to the table. How many of you have ever felt in your life that you should be the provider of your home and that you haven't been able to? There's a lot who may not have lifted their hands, but you felt that way before. Because a society has taught us That our value and our worth is by what you can bring to the table. Your worth is about how talented you are. It's about how beautiful you are. How much money you have. I mean, geez, if you look at a magazine, you will never see a woman with cellulite. Yet 93% of women have it. (laughs) 
Think about this for a second. We attempt to appeal to 7% of people. They think that 7% of people are the perfection while 93% aren't. Think about that for a second. And think about how you value yourself. Women, men, you see guys on TV. I mean, you got a little gut. All of a sudden, you hate yourself. You, you see a little stretch mark and, oh. Why? Because you've been told this is how your worth is measured. You've been likewise told that your worth is measured by how much money you bring home. How much money you have in your bank account. Or what about your accomplishments? How much education you have? I'm better than you because I have all this education. See, we've been told that all these things are what create value in someone's life. But the kingdom of God is totally different. What determines your entrance into the kingdom of God is one thing. It's faith. And it's faith that is displayed through your love for God and for his people. So whether you've done something as great as casting out a demon or as small as offering a drink of cold water, if it came from a heart of faith that loves Jesus and loves his people, you will have your reward in heaven. You see, entrance into God's kingdom is not determined by what you can do for God, but by what God can do for you. His power, His beauty, His riches, the greatness of His accomplishments and His works, that determines your worth. For all things, the Bible says, are from Him, through Him, and to Him. To Him be the glory forever. So what should mark normal Christianity? Is that we would not be prideful people. There should be no boasting. Our lives. Our churches. Should always point to Jesus. We need to be convicted church. We need to get out from that mindset that says. I only care about my comforts. My own well being. Myself. So which is it? Am I so self-centered that I need to repent and have a Copernican revolution? Or am I doing okay? Jesus offers us some tests to be able to find out if we're doing okay or not. And here is, is the text that I really want to go over, the meat of the message. Mark nine forty-two through 50. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Let me just tell you something. I love this verse. You want to know why I love this verse? Let's do it. There's no characterization. There's nothing that says enter eternal life. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, we don't really start living the fullness of life until eternity in his presence. And that's powerful. That this is just a bleep. In the eternity of what God wants to do. Let's continue to verse uh, 46 here. 
Verse 46, guys. All right. 47. Skipped over 46. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worms does not die and where the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So Jesus is painting this graphic picture. It's better to enter the kingdom of heaven blind. <laughs> Give me a second. Think about that. It's better to enter the kingdom of heaven blind, crippled, and lame than to be thrown in the fire of hell. So this is a first test. So to know whether you're self-seeking or whether you're God-seeking, you need to look at the manner with which you're fighting sin. If you're self-seeking, you're not going to be fighting sin in your life. You're going to be doing what makes you feel good. But if you're God-seeking, then let me just share this with you this morning. Show no mercy to sin. In your life, we're talking about your life. Show no mercy to sin. See, it's the call of every Christian to deal ruthlessly with the sin in your life. You ever heard that term? I was in the army before. You ever heard that term? Take no prisoners. Take no prisoners. Even body parts are mentioned. Hands, feet, eyes. This is to say, if anything you do or causes you to sin, dragging you away from Jesus, cut it off. Amputate it from your life. And let me just, just mention this. This is, I love this. This is a Bedouin sword uh, or dagger. Uh, I got this when I went to Israel. And it's just to prove a point. Because some people read this verse and they think it's, it's a literal thing. Well, Jesus wants me to chop it off. I have a whole bunch of little Vienna sausages on the floor. <laughs> Here are my fingers. <laughs> but Jesus isn't calling us to to actual physical amputation. See, self-mutilation was always prohibited in the Old Testament. Context matters. What he's offering us is what's called a hyperbole. He's offering us a metaphor. It's to show us what killing sin actually looks like. The Apostle Paul refers, refers to it as mortifying the deeds of the flesh. In other words, in the words of John Owen, laying our hands upon the throats of these things and not letting go until it stopped breathing. That's what we need to do with sin in our life. See, it's painful to deal with sin in this way. Cutting off your hand, though, is painful. Getting rid of your computer. Doing away with your iPhone because you're addicted to pornography is painful. Selling your house and downsizing because you struggle with materialism is painful. Breaking up with your boyfriend because you know you're seeking his approval more than Jesus' approval is painful. Painful, but these are the marks of a believer. This is not about super Christianity, just about being a normal Christian. The call upon every believer is to love Jesus more than anything else that this world has to offer. And to cut yourself off from anything that would cause you to be dragged away from him. This is what it looks like to love Jesus. So the first litmus test is straightforward. The way you're fighting sin shows whether or not you're egocentric or God-centric. And don't miss the context into which Jesus is, is giving us this graphic illustration. In the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus gives the same illustration, Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. But it's in the context of fighting for our personal holiness. It was about chopping off your hands so you don't go to hell. Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Here, in this particular chapter, he's speaking in the context of not causing other people to stumble. See, in this context, it's not about your personal holiness, but it's fighting to help other people. You see, the church for years, the Western church has been very individualistic. That means us in the U.S. Salvation's personal, right? Individual. Let me just offer you something this morning. While it is a personal responsibility for you to receive Jesus as your Savior, it is a community effort to grow in Christ. You cannot grow in Jesus without community. I was just talking to somebody uh, last night. They were talking to me about how uh, they were really inspired by a television preacher, but they felt that they weren't getting everything that they needed. We can't get everything we need from the TV. It's not church. There needs to be community, a gathering, a family of people that gather together and will lift your hands up when your hands are falling. So here's the real deal. This is the second litmus test. You may be willing to cut off your hand and take drastic actions for your own personal holiness. But are you willing to do the same so that somebody else doesn't go to hell? See, we can do a lot of things. We've heard stories before, right? Man goes hiking, gets his arm trapped by a boulder, driven by his desire to live. He amputates his own arm so that he can live. Uh, We can do all kinds of things. We can live disciplined lives. We can get rid of all signs of external sin in our life. Not because we love God and want to be with him forever. Rather, it's because we love ourselves and we don't want to go to hell. See, there's a difference. There's a difference in between being frightened and scared into eternity and a difference in between loving God so much that you just desperately want to be with him forever. You can be scared into salvation. I don't want to go to hell. So I'm so scared I'm going to receive Jesus as my savior. And there's a difference in between that love for Jesus. But here's the deal. We may be willing to lose a limb for our own salvation. But what about for the person sitting next to you? Maybe you are. Maybe, maybe because it's your husband or your wife or your child or, or your best friend. But here's the real deal. Here's the real test. Are you willing to lose a limb for that guy that you don't like very much? See, when Jesus said... Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, who did he have in mind? The man casting out the demons in Jesus' name. Remember, context matters. Jesus didn't somehow just start this discourse out of thin air. There was an issue that had just happened and Jesus is trying to address it. So here's what Jesus was asking. Jesus was asking John, are you willing to lose a limb for that guy? The one bugging him. That he wanted to keep out of their little club. 
See, this is the litmus test that reveals it all. Even though John completely failed this test in this situation, he eventually got it. And he understood towards the end of his life exactly what Jesus was teaching him. You see, here's the deal. You can't claim to love God and not love his people. Loving God is loving people. Look at what 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. This is John. He's getting it. He's getting it at the end of his life. He's getting it. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Look at, look at 1 John 3.10. I mean, John really, really starts to get this at the end of his life. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who do, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. John finally got it and he wrote an entire book about it. The whole book of 1 John is showing us the impossibility of saying you love God, but not loving his people. Thinking about this leads to all hope being lost where all we can do is ask for forgiveness. We can only care about salvation, our own well-being, and ourselves. As long as we're saved, who cares about other people, right? I mean, this is the mindset that we really, really operate on. How can I not love just myself? How can I know this kind of love? The kind of love where I'm willing to cut off everything in order to save my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. How is John finally able to do it? How is he able to change in his life? Y'all know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave it. Come on now. That whoever. Let me introduce you to the twin brother to this verse. 1 John 3.16 But we, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John got it because he saw and experienced something. He saw Jesus lay down his life for him. How can we be people that don't just look out for our own salvation, but we look out for the salvation of others by experiencing Jesus laying down his life for us? See, Jesus had his salvation guaranteed. He'd already been with the Father for all eternity. If he was only concerned about his own well-being, his own holiness, he would have never left heaven. But he did. The Bible says he left heaven, he wrapped himself in flesh, and he surrendered his heavenly well-being for earthly suffering. He surrendered his own holiness, and the Bible says he became sin for us. Listen to what this author says, Alec Mortier. He says, Christ turned his back voluntarily and deliberately and decisively upon all that belonged to personal glory. And all that conduced to personal gain. He recognized no limit to the extent to which his obedience to God and self-humbling must go. Whatever he found in himself to be expendable, he spent. 
While anything was left which could be poured out, he poured it forth. Nothing was too small to give or too great. Jesus laid his life down. Not only were his hands and his feet given, but he gave of himself so others wouldn't have to. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Powerful, powerful scripture. It says, but God shows us his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. See, Christ laid down his life for us when we were sinners. That means when we were still God's enemy. And if that's the case, then there should be no limit to our willingness to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter how, come on now church, no matter how annoying they are. No matter how deeply they've wronged us. What if we loved each other like that? What if we were willing to do for our brothers and sisters what we're willing to do for ourselves? What would the church of Jesus look like? Listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Let me share with you one final story. There's this story in the Bible. It's a parable that Jesus teaches from in the Gospels. And it is an illustration of God's grace. There existed this boss... He had a servant that worked for him. And the servant, the servant owed his boss a lot of money. There was a lot of debt. As a matter of fact, the the amount that's used in the scriptures is so much that it likely couldn't have been even paid off in 20 lifetimes. So great was the, the debt that he owed to his boss. And the Bible says this, his boss called him forward to him and he said, all of your debts, they're forgiven. So the guy was overjoyed. He was happy. He was excited. But he found someone that owed him much less money. And he grabbed him by the neck. And he said, if you don't give me what you owe me, I'm going to toss you in jail. Hearing what he had done, his boss calls him to him. He said, I've forgiven you so much and here you are in petty things. He goes, now I'm going to throw you in jail. This is the illustration of salvation and the kingdom here's the deal if God showed you his grace you are no one to withhold that grace from someone else you are not the judge you are not the jury you are not the executioner you don't get to sort people for Jesus you don't get to look at them and determine who's Christian enough who's not Christian enough you don't get to set the standard and you don't get to judge people in that way What you get to do is show people grace. Because if God has forgiven you of so much, 
then why shouldn't you forgive people? See, if God has poured out so much grace, then how much more grace should we also be willing to pour out?